The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie Hi there. George Hook here with The Right Hook on News Talk Tuesday's version. And if there are things you missed on the show, or indeed if you missed the show in its entirety, here are some of the highlights. The uh, issue also, of course, is the issue of uh, taxi drivers. We are hearing now uh, in a report, an extraordinary report, which is so full of holes... And we'll be talking about it after uh, five o'clock. Uh, is uh, the issue of how many hours they're working, uh, what kind of uh, money they're making, and this is all coming from the National Transport Authority. And well, I'm uh, in a position where I've got the figures in front of me. Does anybody believe who, who gets a taxi on any kind of a regular basis? Does anybody believe Dublin taxi drivers work an average of five hours a day? Anybody believe that? Uh, that a taxi driver can earn a living of five hours a day when for less, according to the National Transport Authority, he is working less than 50% of the time. In other words, he's got a fare. Like, nonsense number one. They then suggest that the average amount collected by Dublin drivers was 635. Out of that 635, um, he has to pay uh, approximately 100 euro in diesel. Uh, There's certainly going to be uh, money for tyres, depreciation. As soon as you put, what everybody forgets is that as soon as you put a taxi plate on a motor car, its value plummets. So you buy a car for 12 or 15,000 euro, and the day you put a plate on it, it drops to half or less. So when all these people are cribbing about taxi drivers, they might realise that it is the impossibility of trying to make a living. Now, the extraordinary thing in this report, there are 12,000 taxis in Dublin, and they talked... To 58 of them, right? 58 out of 12,000. And they are using that as the basis for their figures. 0.5% of the taxi drivers they are using as a basis for their figures. Meanwhile, around the rest of the country, they talked to 27 taxi drivers out of 8,000. Uh, taxi drivers that are around the country. And on the basis of this kind of a survey, they are going to make decisions about taxi industry uh, in Ireland. Now, not surprisingly, the National Transport Authority has, has said that taxi licences are continuing to fall. Of course they're continuing to fall. You can look at the numbers. If How can you live on €635 Euros a week, provide a motor vehicle uh, for it, uh, pay for the diesel and the repairs and the tax and the insurance and uh, the regulation re- regulatory charges? What the Nans- National Transport Authority is actually saying is you can, taxis are an unaffordable business. But the most extraordinary thing is that for some way, out of 
it, it's just an extraordinary piece of work. And we asked the National Transport Authority to come on the programme and explain how they arrived at it. Uh, they didn't do it. They, were, they weren't going to put anybody up, which is their right. But I, what I want you to do is tell me to 53106. I want you to tell me, do you believe that the average taxi driver in Dublin is working five days a week? Do you believe that? Uh, and that it's it's there were it's just and working not just five days a week for less than five hours a day. Does anybody believe that there is a taxi driver working five hours a day? You can tweet me at G Hook on Twitter and uh, or send me a text of 53106, Mike in Dublin. Uh, it, it doesn't believe the rubbish report on taxi drivers. Uh, nobody believes it. I mean, it's just absolute rubbish. The average fare, by the way, in Dublin is about 15 euros, which makes sense. And... Uh, the uh, how does the taxi driver in Athlone? It's quite interesting. The fare for the the revenue for a taxi driver in Athlone, according to these figures, is three hundred and eighty two a week. Now, how does how does anybody make a living in Athlone driving a taxi? So there's there's a major problem here that we have. A poor public transport. We have poor public uh, transport infrastructure. You want to get people off the street in their motor cars. So what you do in this country, as Michael O'Leary so aptly put it, is you make life impossible uh, for people with motor cars, and it won't work. And what this report is doing is demonstrating that there is actually no will, no understanding of how uh, people in the transport industry actually work. Uh, and then uh, on the taxi thing, uh, Barry says maybe the men driving as working while standing around waiting at a rank wouldn't be working. Um, no. What they said was that they work 5.3 days a week and that they were hired for just 42% of the time. Uh, don't be silly, George. Taxi men don't pay income tax, says Robert. Rubbish. Absolute claptrap, Robert. The overwhelming number of taxi men don't play, do pay income tax. His mate, who he talks about, works eight hours on Saturday, eight hours uh, for the rest of the week. What he means is that there are moonlighters going around the place, and that's what we're supposed to have a regulator for. We're supposed to have a regulator to pick up the moonlighters. And uh, so there are a large proportion of taxi drivers that operate on a part-time basis. Is that skewing the number, says Carl? It probably is. But that's the purpose of a report. Uh, Billy in Cork makes 450 a week as a taxi driver and he has to insure tax and services. Absolutely. It's not possible. And that's why we have to make the taxi industry a professional industry that people can make a living. Uh, the... Uh, uh, Joe in Dublin says that cruising doesn't count, that the five hours a day only refers to when they have a fare. 
Uh, don't be ridiculous, George, says Rose. We have more taxis than most European cities, and it appears to be a very desirable job, judging by these excessive numbers and those trying to join. Sorry, Rose, wrong. Less and less people are actually trying to become taxi drivers, according to the report by the uh, National Transport Authority. Why? Because they can't make any money. And um, my two neighbours are taxi drivers, George, says the listener, and they're at home a huge amount of time. What's that mean? Maybe they just have no work. Try it sometime. See how your taxi driver's getting on. Talk to him. Ask him. Get to know him and hear the story. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back to The Right Hook with George Hook. It's uh, interesting that during census time there was a huge furore about which box one could tick to say that you were Christian or Catholic or Protestant or otherwise. And I remember thinking at the time that it's becoming increasingly difficult to be a person of faith. I got a text from somebody who is 35 and admitting going to Mass, he said rather humorously, is tantamount to proclaiming that I'm a homophobic woman hater. I'm delighted to have him on the programme. John, welcome. Hi, George. How are you getting on? Uh, well, I was deeply uh, interested in your text because it's a view I share. It's quite difficult to be a Catholic. What's your experience? Um, well, to be honest, George, it's like you said, it's quite difficult. If, if someone asks you what you're doing on a Sunday morning, they expect you to say you're lying in bed, you're not going to get up. Or, you know, if they, if they ask you, they might ask you your opinion on, say, issues like um, the Eighth Amendment, and they assume you immediately are going to say, oh, well, we should repeal it. Or any, any kind of halfway controversial issues involving, or that would have been, I suppose, a given they now assume you're no longer willing to take the Catholic line on things. Even if they might be kind of nominally Catholic themselves, they wouldn't admit to it. But it seemed to me, reading your text, and obviously it was fairly short, that it kind of affects your social life um, if, you, if you start saying, well, I'm going to Mass or I'm a Catholic or otherwise. Um, well, it can, all right, yeah. I mean, I, I, suppose I'm, I suppose I should point out I'm single at the moment, so... If I meet a girl that I like, I'm I'm always a bit wary of how she's likely to react to hearing that I go to mass. And I mean, like you like you said yourself, or like I said, I think in the text, a lot of the time, if you admit to being a Catholic, some people just automatically assume that means woman hater. So it's difficult, I suppose, when you're a single Catholic man, to admit to a woman that you're a Catholic for fear of what she'll think that she thinks. Right, this is the guy who's going to want me to stay at home and do all the cooking and raise a family, and has no respect for women. And, but, of course, that's not the case. No, of course it isn't the case. But is that in your head, though? I mean, in terms like you are a single man, so you date. I mean, is it in your head that you don't want to say it? Maybe you just spit it out there and say, listen, I can't see you until after 12 o'clock on Sunday because I'm going to Mass or, or what, do you? I mean, um, um, well, just, I suppose if it was to come up in, in conversation, it's just that sort of, I mean, it's not something that you immediately say to someone as soon as you meet them. But, it's, I mean, it is a fairly important part of my life, I suppose. It comes up, like, you know, if someone's asking you what you did over the weekend you might mention casually that you went to mass but again you'd be you'd be wondering what they're gonna yeah. what they're going to say to her ironically of course if you did marry um a girl the odds are she'd want to be churched 
you know I suppose that depends as well these <laughs> days as well a lot of a lot of women I meet would kind of say they might you know they might decide if they were going to if they wanted to get married at all that they might get married in a church just to keep their parents happy or something like that would those kind of things be important to you i mean would it be important to you to get married in church would it be important for you that the children of the marriage be brought up as catholics or that children would go to a catholic school do these things matter to you um well i suppose it's difficult for me to say since i'm not at the at the point where i'm likely to get married or have children in the immediate future but i think as things stand, I would like that to be the case. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily think it's awfully important that I was to, that I would have to marry a Catholic woman, but whoever I was to marry would have to accept that I would want my children brought up at least with an exposure to the faith. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't be a believer in saying, look, we'll bring them up with no faith, and when they're eighteen, we'll let them decide. It's... I'm inclined to say, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say, look, you can't. You have to pretend to be Catholic for the sake of the children. If she's not Catholic, she's not Catholic, and that's fine. Or if she doesn't believe in it, that's her that's her choice, and I certainly wouldn't expect her to lie to the children about her either. Yeah. Um, the, the interesting thing that is increasingly happening when I do things like this on the radio is the majority of texts are negative. Uh, the majority of texts are saying, you know, how can you possibly believe stories of talking snakes in, in uh, the Garden of Eden and uh, resurrections and all these kind of fairy stories? Um, Life after death, and the suggestion is that you're slightly deranged that you believe these things. I've certainly been given that impression of myself from time to time as well. I wouldn't necessarily agree with it, but I, I mean, I can see where people are coming from. I suppose it's difficult for someone without faith to understand a person's faith, and even I can't speak for everyone of faith, but I've certainly found myself my faith is stronger sometimes than at others. It's not. I'm not a hundred percent sure of everything. I believe in from one day to the next. It kind of waxes and wanes, as it were. There also is, like, I don't smoke, really, because my mother didn't smoke and my father told me why I shouldn't. I don't drink really very much because my mother didn't drink at all and my father drank very little. And and by and large, um, a parental example affects us all as children as we grow up. Um, so did you come from a house of faith then? Um, I suppose I did insofar as most Irish people um, of of my age would. But I mean, again, most Irish people of my age wouldn't be fervent mass goers really at this point. I mean, again, I have a brother and a sister. And as far as I know, neither of them really go to mass anymore. So, I mean, we all had the same, the same upbringing, more or less. And I, as far as I know, I'm the only one of the three who certainly regularly goes to mass. Now, I couldn't tell you what it is they believe exactly. But they wouldn't be regular mass goers, anyway, right. and I don't think they'd necessarily identify as Catholic. Have you worked out why you believe? I mean, given that you're you're increasingly in a minority, you face you 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 face uh, for sometimes criticism. You're 35, so you're of a generation where more people don't go to mass than do. Have you questioned your own beliefs? Oh, I've definitely questioned my beliefs. I don't think I don't think it's. Um, it's a positive thing to just the old the old phrase I suppose a blind faith. I don't think that's necessarily a sensible way of doing things. I think you should you should always question what you believe, regardless of what it is, be it a religion or I mean I'm I've got a science background myself, which is another thing people don't necessarily think tally is religion and science together. But um, I have a science background myself, so my background is to question things, investigate them, and see if the evidence backs up what you believe. 
and I, I think I approach my faith to that extent as well. But I just, I haven't found any good reason not to believe. I mean, like I said, sometimes my belief is strong and sometimes quite yeah. weak. It, sometimes I question it entirely. But John, you're in Dublin, and when you go to Mass on Sunday, the numbers, of course, are a great deal smaller than when you would have gone to Mass as a schoolboy, for argument's sake. I mean, where is where do you think uh, the church is going now? Not just to forget about the world. Like, where is it going in Ireland? The great tradition of the penal laws and the head schools and um, the fate, the fate of our fathers and all that kind of stuff. Is that all within a generation just going to disappear, do you think? Uh, it's difficult to say, George. I mean, I think a lot of people, again, of my age would kind of be, I, I'd say they wouldn't necessarily lose their faith entirely, but they're less inclined to follow it. And it's difficult to say if maybe as they grow older, they might start to see the value in it again or might start feeling things or believing things that were more difficult to believe when I suppose they were more cynical in their 20s and 30s. I'm sure a lot of them won't, but I I suspect that there'll be something of an upturn as people grow a little bit older. I I think, I mean, image definitely comes into it to a point. I mean, someone, like I said, someone of of my age or in their 20s would be slow to admit to being a Catholic because it would be be seen as a very kind of old-fashioned thing, I think. Whereas once you're when you're in your forties or fifties and you're more settled down and maybe you're thinking about raising raising your own children, you're kind of thinking, is it such a bad thing? Maybe I do believe. It's I think I don't think it's necessarily something that we can definitely say is going to be gone. But at the same time, um, like I like I think I mentioned before, there's an element even of bullying of people who are willing to express um, Catholic views or more traditional Catholic views anyway, and if that element of bullying is allowed to to continue, it's going to be it's going to be um, difficult for those people to admit to to still having faith. And then, if if they're unwilling to admit it to other people, they might not want to admit it to themselves as well. And I I mean, the more cynical side of me thinks that that might be part of part of the plan for some of the the more cynical of those without faith or those who I mean, there's a lot of people will tell you that they're spiritual but not religious. So, I mean, those people might well be of the opinion that they want to do damage to the Catholic Church without necessarily wanting to do damage to people's spirituality. But, like like was mentioned, um, a lot of times coming up to the our various, well, various issues that there would have been a very strong pro-Catholic stance on in the past. Nowadays, you're almost looked at like you have two heads if you, if you say that, look, you think the Catholic Church's teaching is right on, on these things. All right, I concur. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. That's John, uh, and uh, I'd love to hear your reaction to his views by sending me a text to 53106, cost 30 cents. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, I have a guest in the studio uh, it is Roisin Shortall, TD for Dublin Northwest, uh, and a distinguished member of the Social Democrats. Uh, Deputy Shortall, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Pleasure. Uh, just John Burton has resigned in mm-hmm. the last hour or so. Pang of regret, I'm sure, for you to see a fellow 
female who would you would have soldiered with, no doubt. Oh yeah? yes, yeah. I mean, it's it's sad what's happened to the Labour Party. There's no doubt about that. However, I'm sure Joan will find another role. Uh, she still has a lot to contribute, and of course, will continue as a TD uh, for this stall. So it'll be interesting to see what happens right. now in relation to the succession. Now, it's a lot, you could have taken on a lot of tasks as Social Democrats in, in government. Fixing the health service, you decided to start with the toughest one, did you? I thought it was an interesting choice. Well, I'm here today, George, to talk to you about a very important initiative that happened this morning. And that's an all-party um, doll motion that has been tabled now um, to set up a special committee to... Uh, examine the health service um, to look at what would be involved in introducing a single tier health service and the best kind of funding model for that to see what's involved in doing what everybody says they want to do, which is switch the focus away from the big acute hospitals to the community and primary care and see how that could be done, how you'd model that and what the costs would be involved. But the main thing is to draw up a plan, a 10 year plan for taking the health service in a new direction. And I was delighted today that 89 of the TDs in the Dáil have signed up to this. Now when you say all parties do you really mean all parties? No, it's I suppose cross party is a more accurate description of it. We were hoping that all parties and independents would sign up. Um, they didn't all sign up but a very large number did. So as I say we have 89 signatures, okay. a very right. clear majority, obviously out of 158 sure. TDs. So this is part of the new kind of politics I think that is now becoming possible under the new arrangements and the new configuration where we have a minority government and where actually the majority is on the opposition. But everybody is talking now this great phrase in new kind of politics. Like is that just a phrase or does it mean something? Uh, It's a phrase that's used a lot and annoys some people but I think it has the potential to mean something because it's new insofar as we now for the first time have a situation where the government, the minority government is actually quite a small government. You know, last week when they elected uh, Enda Kenny there were 59 members supporting Enda Kenny as against 49 who voted against and then the others that abstained. So, You've this arrangement between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, um, where Fianna Fáil will support Fine Gael on issues to do with the, the economy, financial issues and also confidence issues. But apart from that, you know, we can have initiatives and we can have legislation coming from either the government side or the opposition side. And if the opposition work together and cooperate and collaborate on things, it will be possible for the opposition to, you know, get wins in okay. terms of I making achievements. All right, I get it. But can, let's get back now to something you're obviously pretty chuffed about and rightly so if it works but like the first the, only, the first health minister I knew uh, was Noel Brown so mm-hmm. that's so far back I can go and there have been a lot of them since then nobody has cracked it isn't that so that's why so. is that well it's partly I would say because traditionally the Irish health system has been very much dogged by a whole lot of different vested interests And, you know, that goes from the pharmaceutical companies to the insurance companies, the private hospitals, the unions, uh, a whole lot of different interests. And they're kind of, I think most ministers have taken the approach that they'll keep all the balls in the air. 
rather than starting, you know, from a position of putting the patient first and seeing what needs to be no, done. No, I, I wouldn't dream of criticising you here, but I have heard the phrase "put the patient first before. So why why can we get it? How can we get it different this time? Even if we have cross party support or whatever, like if you go to America. Data health service where primarily if you're rich you're okay, if you're poor you're not. Mm-hmm. Britain has a system which would be fair, brought in by a Labour government after the war. Uh, if you're poor you still by and large get health service, right? Um, and But we haven't got ours fixed at all. Sure, and I mean you make a very good point there about what happened in Britain after the war where Bevan introduced this concept of a national health service yes. on behalf of the Labour Party. Um, there was agreement from the, the Tories so that since, you know, the day, the war, there has been a clear policy set down by by uh, British governments, irrespective of their hue, whether they were Labour yeah. or Tory. So, you know, different governments have given more or less to the NHS, but nobody's saying we should scrap the NHS and bring in a different system. You know, we know that British people generally are very proud of the NHS. Yes. It's been, it has served well, the country well. Well, that's a question well. I have to ask, because in a way, do we not Roisin Shortall, did we not kind of copy it like we copied their radio or we copied so many things in Britain because we'd been part of it for so long? But we just didn't copy it right. Is that what but happened? You see, we've always had a two-tier health service. Okay. So that means that, you know, people received health care on the basis of their ability to pay for it rather than their health need. And that's a very different kind of system. And as you say, we haven't ever had agreement on the kind of system that would suit the Irish situation best. Well, what one Ev- does? Well, could I just say every yeah. minister brings a new plan. Yeah. So like over the last 25 years or so, we had Michal Martin with the HSE and that was supposed to solve all the problems. It didn't. We had uh, Mary Harney with co-location. And that turned out to be a disaster. We had um, uh, James Riley with universal health insurance. That has been scrapped. So, you know, every minister brings a new plan and they try to implement the plan and that causes huge upheaval in the health service, huge uncertainty and this kind of constant churn that we've seen. Well, you see, sorry, yeah, there now, and God bless your memory, like, you bring out three points, me, all Martin, Mary Harney, James Orley, and as you're saying it, I'm absolutely certain the people listening are like me, saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, Uh, great ideas, disaster, disaster, disaster. Now, the next plan, other than the fact that it's cross-party, it's still just another plan, though, isn't no, it? No, but you see, the point is that this motion that we've tabled today um, calls for a special committee to be set up to report back, you know, within a six-month okay. period, which is important. It's not something that's going to go on indefinitely. It has a very specific remit with a strict time scale. The objective is to look at how we can best introduce a single-tier health service in this country. Now, the Social Democrats would be of the view that the best way of doing that is by establishing an Irish NHS. Other parties might have different ideas on that. But at least can we agree that what we want is a modern, quality, single-tier health service that will serve everybody. By single-tier, do you you mean that there would no longer be health insurance in the shape of the VHIRA? Yes, exactly. And if people wanted to go off and get their own health insurance, that would be fine. But the state wouldn't be involved in that. And that's what happens in the UK. While they have national health, uh, a national health service that the vast majority of people are 
catered for with, there is a small number of people that get private health insurance. I think it's about 15% yeah. in, in the UK. As opposed to our 50, give Exactly. Or so we have to end the situation where on the one hand, people are paying through the nose for health insurance for, you know, because they feel they can't depend on the public service. And equally within the public service, you know, you have massive waiting lists. Like there's a half a million people on waiting lists for hospital services sure. at the moment. And that's just intolerable. Health was the number one concern of people in the general election. So what this motion is doing is calling on all parties to sit down together to agree that what we need is a really good quality, modern, single tier health service and to look at what are the best ways of funding that service. But, but then what you then do, having decided that, you go back to your almost your very first sentence to me. You then have the unions, the consultants, the nurses, the you know, all of them, mm-hmm. the private hospitals, mm-hmm. all of whom are integral at the moment, whether it's the BlackRock Clinic or the Beacon or then it's the matter. Like, you had, because we have such a mixture, isn't there an incredible job of disentangling oh, that? Th- there's a huge job of disentangling that, yes, and having a streamlined health service that is integrated as well, because we know that, you know, if you have better services at community and primary care level, well, then people will be treated earlier, they'll get better quality services. And that in turn will take the pressure off the hospitals. So, you know, you need that kind of reorientation of the health service as well. And there needs to be a much greater emphasis on health promotion as well. All right. And preventative medicine. Sure. But what I worry, you see, is if you look at Obamacare, which mm-hmm. is quite interesting, like they did an analysis recently uh, on this and it, America was split down the middle. If you had money, like by and large, you thought Obamacare was rubbish, you know, no good, no. However, if you were poor, if you were black, they all thought, my life is now better as a result of this kind of care. What the 50% who have health insurance today have, they have a queue jumping past. Isn't that right? Yes, that's right. right. So if I want to get my knee done, I can get it done next week. Yeah. Yeah. If, if somebody else wants their knee done, they're two years away. Yeah, but the important thing, George, is that, you know, this kind of approach to medicine and where people feel they have to fork out huge kind yeah. of insurance payments um, or premiums in order to access decent health care, that is unheard of in the UK and in most of Europe. Correct. Because there are good quality uh, public health systems that are available to people that are free at the point of use. And that's what we need to do here. Ireland isn't all that different to any other country. And we're spending about the average amount on our health care well, system. Well, given that, like, given that we're spending the same amount as a percentage, uh, you still have, like, what a lot of people will be asking, and I'm only, I think, they're exercising their view, is how do we get it so wrong then? Like, is there... Well, I think it's been largely because there's so many vested interests and we've had weak ministers who weren't prepared to stand up to those vested interests. I mean, for example, there could be huge savings on the whole pharmaceutical front. OK, we pay more than any other country for medicines in this country. Now, that's individually. We all pay that out of our pockets. But also the state pays very high prices for medicines. Now, that needs to be tackled. There were promises over the years to tackle that problem. And what did we get? We had the pharmaceutical companies coming in and putting on really heavy lobbies on senior politicians to make sure that they committed to keeping prices up. So that's how medicine has been operating in this country for a very long time. And that's why now 
all politicians on a cross party basis need to sit down, look at the problems, accept that we cannot continue the way we have been going, agree that we need a single tier, good quality modern health service and then take advice. There are plenty of people in this country, the SRI, there are plenty of people in the medical field, in in academia that can answer those questions. How do we transition from the current two tier system to a fair, um, good quality, single tier system? How do they do it in other countries? What is the best practice that we can learn from other countries? And, you know, the approach needs to be to put leave the, the vested interests outside the door. Bring in people with expertise. Let's use the evidence on how we achieve a high quality health service. And I'm delighted that today 89 TDs have signed up okay. to that, which means that we can carry this motion in the doll and hopefully the work of that new special committee on health can get underway as a matter of urgency. All right. I wish you well. The odds are against you, but battling the odds uh, isn't something you, you haven't been afraid to do in the past. My guest from the Social Democrats, uh, Deputy Roisin Shorto.